Well, let's go ahead and pray, and uh, we'll start with our time here this evening. Lord, we thank you for uh, the Gospels that uh, we've had an opportunity to look at so far, and that uh, we're reminded of uh, the many-faceted work that Christ did while he was here on earth, and uh, most importantly, the greatest act of service in dying on the cross for us. And so we pray as uh, we look at uh, this book that we'd be able to better read it, understand it, uh, but yet also be able to share this book with others and uh, be able to use it. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 1, and uh, we'll be in several passages this evening, not too many, but uh, we're we're talking about this we're going through an overview of this gospel i have a fondness for the book of mark just because it was uh there were two books that uh, when i started taking greek in college that i had to work through and the first one they had us go through was first john and uh, then they had us go through the gospel of mark and I became very familiar with the Gospel of Mark just because my life depended on it. Uh, the class was not easy because Greek was Greek, uh, and it was Greek to me, and uh, so we worked through it. But it was uh, a fruitful study because it required us to, to dig into passages that I might have, as a teenager, just kind of read through really quick and whatever else and didn't even realize it was in the Scripture. And then you're translating these words and you're going, uh, I'm not familiar with this story. It's, I couldn't guess at what the words were. Uh, but yet, uh, come out of it and uh, found out that the book of Mark was a relatively easy book because uh, of a few things that we'll talk about in a second, but it's a relatively easy book to read through as far as a gospel. In fact, uh, what uh, many people will suggest to individuals if they are new to the Scripture never read through the Bible, they'll oftentimes say, have you ever read through the book of Mark? You know, it's something that's shorter and allows uh, perhaps somebody who's daunted by the fact of I'm reading a book of Scripture, they can read this rather quickly and understand it and be able to do that. And so many people, if they start people reading the Bible, they'll go read the book of Mark. You'll get a full picture of who Jesus is. And uh, they'll do that. But uh, it is a, a really fantastic book. And uh, the theme, as we've already hinted at, we uh, will find out is that Jesus is a servant. And uh, he is that. Now, we'll start off with uh, who is the author. And, and, and it's important. Nor normally, I kind of skip over these and we talk about it a little bit because it's kind of obvious who it is. But I think it's important for us to understand who the author of this is. It is an individual in our Bibles known as John Mark. Okay, John Mark, uh, you find him in the, the book of Acts, you'll find him in the epistles. You'll find him hinted at in the Gospels. Uh, John was his Hebrew name. Mark or Marcus would have been his Roman name. And uh, at different times, the, the different names were used for him. But he was around many of the events of Christ's ministry. In fact, you get to Mark chapter, I want to say it's 14, if I remember the right area. 
But uh, verses 51 and 52 of that chapter, there is an account of an individual who's at the garden who's wrapped in a tunic, a young man, who when all the disciples flee away, he's still there, and the Roman soldiers try and grab onto him, and he loses the blanket that's there, and it says he runs away naked. Now, my thought on that is where and what does that have to do with the story? Well, it's because Mark is giving an account of what he observed. You say, why was he out in the middle of the night like that? Well, for him, uh, he had heard the, the soldiers go out, perhaps, and uh, followed them out, and followed them to the garden and was an observer of what went on there. But uh, that detail, little detail kind of hints at the fact John Mark was a part of these things. One of the other things is that you have to realize that the large meeting space of the church at Jerusalem was Mark's mom's house. She seems to be a wealthy widow. His mom's house is where people meet. In fact, some think that this is the house that that room, or excuse me, that large uh, meeting place that when Peter is released from prison, he comes and bangs on the door uh, there, that this is uh, the house of John Mark's mom. Now, there is no record of when he was converted. Okay, In fact, you read some of the historical records, it seems like he probably, uh, from their accounts, that he may not have been saved during Christ's ministry and that the events of the cross were what really changed his perspective on everything. But in his life, uh, he traveled with Paul, Barnabas, who was his cousin. Okay, that, that is a, a detail that plays a role later in the ministry of John Mark. And Peter. See, he is noted for failing Paul in Acts chapter 13. See, when Paul is sent out from the church at Antioch, they go to different locations, and they get to Asia Minor, and there's this, this little note that John Mark leaves Paul and Barnabas to go back to Jerusalem. And you might just go, okay, well, he was sent back to Jerusalem for something, but when you get to Acts chapter 15, when Paul and Barnabas come back to Jerusalem, the Jerusalem council, and they're going to go back out again, that Barnabas goes, well, let's take John Mark with us, and Paul goes, no. I mean, it's a strong no. And there's this argument that goes back and forth of, no, John Mark's okay, it'll be fine if we take them. And, and the word there is one of the stronger words for strife between Paul and Barnabas. They have, a, they have an argument over this, and it's a strong argument they have. And what happens is that Paul takes Silas, and Barnabas takes uh, John Mark with him. He goes to Cyprus, and, and Paul and Silas go to Asia Minor, and eventually to Philippi, and all those places, uh, and they go different directions. Um, at the end of Paul's life, though, he does describe John Mark as profitable. In fact, he's asking for John Mark to come. He's there in prison, and he's saying, he's profitable, so bring him along with you uh, when you come here to Rome. So there's obviously, by what John Mark does, he does make an impression on the Apostle Paul that he had changed. Whether or not he traveled with the Apostle Paul again, uh, we've got some statements that Paul is making comments that he may very well have traveled with him. Now, <clears throat> one other thing that uh, we have is that um, many feel that this is the gospel according to Peter. 
Okay, you, you read some of the early church fathers, and they describe uh, Mark as Peter's interpreter. And you go, what do you mean by interpreter? There's a lot of uh, conjecture on this, but uh, Mark having a Roman name may very well have had some ability in Latin um, and uh, ability in Greek. And Peter being the rough fisherman, his Greek may not have been all that great. You read some of the writings of the apostles, Peter and his Greek in First and Second Peter is kind of a rough Greek to try and read. Um, that Mark was his interpreter, and so if that's the case, he would have heard Peter's stories about Jesus over and over and over again as Peter is going from place to place, giving the gospel. John Mark was with him. So John Mark is a really unusual character because he is, he is involved with some of the most prominent individuals in the New Testament church and involved in helping them, not just knowing them, helping them, Paul, Barnabas, and Peter. So this is not, when we think about John Mark, you go, well, he wasn't one of the apostles. He wrote one of the, the, the gospels. Why would he have this? Because he's in close contact with individuals who had interaction with Christ, Paul being taught later, Peter having been with Christ when he was actually here on the earth, and Barnabas, who uh, I would guess was probably an eyewitness to many of the events because he's very early in church history there um, in the church. So John Mark's not a significant character, but it is significant that he is this way because when he starts writing about the fact of what the theme is, is that Jesus is a servant What did John Mark do with most of his life? He's serving other people. Serving underneath them. Serving uh, with Paul, and then serving with Barnabas, and then serving under Peter, and then serving with uh, ministering to Paul. Uh, he's a servant uh, himself, and so he's not writing with something that he's unfamiliar with. He's very familiar with what it is to have to put yourself under somebody else and work for them and be with them. Uh, John Mark is that kind of individual. So the Lord kind of prepares John Mark with his life to be the one who presents to us the picture of Jesus Christ as being a servant. And so it's appropriate to have him there. Now you say, why is uh, the, uh, or who is he writing to? Well, he's writing to Romans, okay? So you say Romans, uh, people who are Roman background, Italian background, you know, not everybody in the Roman Empire was Roman, but it seems to be for an audience that uh, is in the Roman Empire, but some of the details seem to indicate the fact that it's written for a Roman audience, and the last thing here is going to be the most important in it. Uh, there are several things translated when it comes to Aramaic words. You go, what's Aramaic? <clears throat> Your Old Testament's written in Hebrew, New Testament's written in Greek. But in between uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Jews started using Aramaic. In fact, part of your book of Daniel is written in Aramaic. And you go, well, what's Aramaic? Aramaic is a close family language to Hebrew, but it's different. So you would have been walking around in Jesus' day, you wouldn't have necessarily been hearing Hebrew, you would have been hearing a lot of Aramaic. Um, 
And so there are a lot of Aramaic words that are translated for the reader. If he's writing a Jewish culture, you don't have to explain them. You know, it's like explaining to us certain words that are familiar to us in our culture, and we're okay with this. You know, barbecue. You know, what's a barbecue? Well, we, we all know what a barbecue is, but you have somebody who comes from a foreign country, and you have BBQ, and they have no idea what that is. You know, what's a, what's a barbecue? No idea. Um, so it is, there are certain things that Mark is translating over for his readers. He gives the actual Aramaic word, but then he explains it. Here's what that means. Um, there is uh, a few quote, very few quotes of the Old uh, Testament prophecies. Okay, there's not many quotes of the Old Testament. Matthew, as we said, his quotes out, you know, pace all three gospels put together as far as how many quotes he has in the Old Testament. Mark, he's not really referring to the Old Testament a whole lot because the Romans aren't familiar with the Old Testament. Um, so he's not really referring much to that. Uh, and there's geography in Israel that has to be explained, places in the temple and the city of Jerusalem that he has to explain what this means and where it's at. People who were Jewish would have been like, oh, we, we know where that's at. You know, we, we we're familiar with the territory there. But the last thing that kind of points to the fact that this is a book written to Romans is this little significant, uh, seemingly insignificant statement about who carries Jesus' cross. There's a man by the name of Simon of Cyrene. And it makes a statement uh, that he is the father of Alexander and Rufus, and he just leaves it at that. You're like, okay, you know, we're, we're trying to figure out who Simon of Cyrene is, and you're like, oh, by the way, he's the father of Alexander and Rufus, and you're like, well, wait a second, who's Simon of Cyrene? How did he enter this picture? But Mark puts in this thing, he's the father of Alexander and Rufus. Well, we have several Alexanders in the Scripture, and some of them not good and otherwise, but Rufus is an individual that's mentioned in Romans chapter 16 as being a part of the church at Rome. We'll get to that as we go through Romans 16 when we eventually finish off the book of Romans here on Sunday mornings. Uh, we'll get to that. But he's a well-known member of the church at Rome. So what Mark's writing is going, oh, by the way, Simon of Cyrene, he carried Jesus' cross. You know, Alexander and Rufus and the church here, that was their dad. Okay, so that's why that little detail is put in there is because he's writing to Roman audience, but specifically uh, people in the church at Rome and in the area surrounding Rome. So that's uh, one of the reasons for that. Time written, uh, some people see uh, Mark as the earliest gospel. I have some real trouble with this because uh, they go, it's the shortest one and the other two build off of it. You know, they're stealing stuff from Mark and so that's why it has to be the earliest one and I'm kind of going, I, I'm really hesitant to think that our scripture is compiled that way <clears throat> because people wrote the scripture because they were moved by the Holy Ghost, not because they had a another copy of the scripture and decided to expand on it. Um, <clears throat> many believe that it's written between 64 and 68 AD. You go, why is that? Because that is the occasion that Peter was in Rome and that Mark may very well have been with him during that time frame. So that's, you look at most contexts of people who are conservative and they say it's probably written in that time frame uh, when Mark would have been with the Romans. So, 
You go, what's the emphasis of the book? Well, it's Jesus, and he is really a a picture of what we would call the servant of the Lord. Now, that hinting of the servant, and uh, I don't go much into the detail of this, is an Old Testament theme, especially when you get to the book of Isaiah. You have this uh, individual who's the servant of the Lord. Now, it can be the nation of Israel. It can be Christ. It could be Cyrus, uh, the king of Persia. It could be a number of different individuals, but the servant of the Lord ultimately is the one who dies in the place of other people. Isaiah 53. And with his stripes, we are healed. Uh, And so it's not insignificant for Jesus to be presented as a servant because the Old Testament kind of pointed to the fact that Jesus was going to be a servant. Now, when you look at the book of Mark, we described it uh, in our introductory to the whole of the Old or New Testament as the gospel of action. That's how some even describe it in their commentaries and their title of their book. They just call it the gospel of action because there's few words of Jesus. It's not to say that he doesn't ever speak. There's just a few words, much less than the book of Luke and uh, John and Matthew. Uh, Mark is the shortest of the gospels. Okay, you go, why? If you cut off a lot of the teachings that Jesus has uh, and you aren't using those as part of your thing, that's going to be a little bit shorter. And so it is uh, uh, the shortest of the Gospels. But the activity never seems to stop. A Greek, word, uh, a Greek word translated straightway, immediately, or anon is used 41 times in the book of Mark. Uh, you, you might want to do this sometimes. You go through the book of Mark. Just mark all the times you see those words. I think I did this once, and one of the times is it's actually hidden in our English text, uh, and it's not there, but it's 41 times. You say, well, why is that important? Because most of the other Gospels don't use this word. It's got the idea of, okay, here I'm, I'm doing one thing, and all of a sudden I get done with this project, and it's next, next thing. You know, there's no break. There's no laying off for a season. It's, okay, this task is done, another one to do. And so you have this statement, uh, he, straightway and immediately and anon uh, coming up. And then you read the stories, they also keep connected with many news stories starting with and. Okay, it's not just a new story. It's, it's okay, here you have this story, and then there's the next one. And uh, I think I remember the statistic, it's something like uh, 16 of the cha- either 16 chapters in the book of Mark that 12 of them start with and. To connect you to the previous thing. So there's just kind of reading through the book of Mark, you're going, okay, there's all this activity, it's nonstop, and the story just keeps going and going and going and going. The, the, the work never seems to be done. It just keeps going and going and going. There's another thing that is kind of a hidden uh, thing in here that many commentators point out, that it seems like that in Mark chapter 3 and verse 19, you have the start of a day that goes all the way to Mark chapter 5 and verse 20. And they've called this the busy day. And if you read it, Jesus is healing all sorts of people. He sits down and talks about all sorts of parables. He goes and uh, he is uh, doing different things. And he's actually in that story, there is so much going on that he doesn't even have time to eat. It makes this statement that there's, there's so much uh, busyness. And you've had this type of activity in your life where you've got projects going on and, and uh, it's like, uh, you know, and it's like somebody said, oh, you missed lunch. And it's like, I didn't have time to eat. You know, I've got to get this done. Um, you have that on several occasions. Mark chapter 6 mentions the same thing where uh, Jesus doesn't even have time to eat. 
It's just so busy that the activities that are going on that he doesn't have time to stop and even get his own necessities of life because he's taking care of everyone else's. Now, unlike the gospel surrounding Mark, this gospel includes no genealogy or birth account. Okay, Matthew, you have the genealogy that starts it off and this count of his birth and all the wise men coming. Uh, In Luke, following after this, you have all these announcements of angels coming and announcing his birth. And when he's born, there's a whole choir that's there that's singing. And then right after that, you have the genealogy. Mark has none of that. In fact, Mark chapter 1, verse 1, here's how the book starts. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophets, behold, I send my messenger before thy face, and they shall prepare thy way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. You're going, wait a second, that's, that's John the Baptist. Uh, we skipped 30 years here. Okay, you go, why is that? Because when it comes to a servant, no one cares about what a servant's birth is. It's whether or not they're working. I mean, really. I mean, you don't care what their background is or anything like this. It's the question is, do you do work? Are you capable of doing that? And so with this gospel, it just kind of goes straight into this. It doesn't have any of those stories that, you know, the Christmas story, you know, hey, we're going to do the Christmas story from the book of Mark. Okay, sermon over, have a great day. You know, that, that's uh, what you could possibly do with the book of Mark when it comes to the Christmas story. Now, Mark mentions often that Jesus sees, looks, and beholds. In comparison to the other Gospels, there's a lot of this going on. And you go, well, what's the purpose behind this? Because a servant is always looking to take care of things. You know, they're always looking around and going, oh, that needs to be taken care of, or this needs to be taken care of. And also, more than other Gospels, Mark details the use of Jesus' hands in many miracles. Okay, there there are a couple of the Gospels that mention that he uses hands. But when you read the book of Mark and you're reading through it, he's, he's using his hands He's seeing things that need to be done, and he's working, taking care of things. Uh, and uh, he has these miracles. Now, he's also one, uh, he's mentioned as being a carpenter. And uh, you say, well, what does it mean for him to be a carpenter? Well, um, he is, uh, trying to remember the passage where that is mentioned right offhand. I had it written in my notes, and I'm not finding it. But uh, the word carpenter, understand, it's not just merely that he's a woodworker. Okay, He would have had to work with wood. Uh, the idea is this is a one who's a craftsman. Uh, he probably worked with stone, wood, perhaps the shaping of metal. So that, that's what that word means. It's not just merely that he's working with wood. And especially in the nation of Israel, there's not a whole lot of wood to be working with. If you go and look at their buildings, a lot of it's made out of stone. Not much wood, because you go, why? Because there's a lot of stone available, there's not a whole lot of trees available. Uh, So, would he work with wood? Yeah. But uh, more than likely, he's working with stone and other items. Uh, And uh, so, here's a guy who's, who's working and doing things with his hands. Manual labor, not easy work. Okay, so uh, if you were to see the hands of the Savior, they would have been rough hands. 
because of the work that he would have been doing. The message of Jesus' servant would have been important to the Romans because they were individuals of deeds and actions. You read Roman culture, they really don't care what you say, it's what you've accomplished. And when you think about the great individuals in Roman culture, basically they were individuals who had won great battles or done things like that. It's not to say that they didn't have people who gave speeches, they did. I mean, people like Cicero and others that that gave speeches and were known for this, Seneca, others. But basically the Romans were like, okay, what, what have you accomplished? Their biggest festivals were for, and parades were for individuals who had done great deeds. And so what they're looking to see is, is this a person of action who's capable of doing things? And besides that, one out of every two people in the Roman Empire were servants. It's hard for us to imagine you know, just thinking about this, uh, that one out of every two people, 50% of the population, uh, were slaves or servants of some kind. That was their job. That was their life. And so for some in the Roman Empire, it's not whether he's got deeds or actions. They're wondering, is this one, well, working like I should be working? Is there a reflection in his life, if he's a servant, is he reflecting what I'm like? There's an we might put it this way, an affinity. You know, you, I, you know there, there's a, a, a familiarity going, okay, I understand what this is like. I, I feel secure in an individual like this because they, they understand what my life is like. And so this book, many deeds and actions, but part of it may well be because the people were Romans. Now, this is where we need to slow down for a second because this is part of the message of this book. One of the things that Jesus emphasizes, uh, or is that Mark emphasizes of Jesus' teaching in this book, it's a thing about discipleship. In fact, uh, I didn't, another thing I put in the notes, there, there seems to be this thing of being in the way you know, you're going somewhere, and you're following somebody as you're in the way. And Jesus puts a real emphasis on discipleship and what it means to be a disciple. See, when he gets his disciples uh, eventually, and I want you to turn over to this, in Mark chapter 8, when he finally gets his disciples to acknowledge who he is, He's at Caesarea Philippi, and he's talking to different his disciples there, and he says, well, who do men say that I am? Verse 27. Okay. Who, who do people say? You know, what are the polling, uh, what's the polling data out there of what people think I am? Who do they think I am? In verse 28, they answered John the Baptist. Some say Elias, and others one of the prophets. And he saith unto them, but whom say ye that I am? I mean, what's your opinion? I'm not wanting to now know what everybody else thinks. I want to know what you think. Peter responds and answers and says unto him, thou art the Christ. In other gospels you have, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. I mean, that's the confession. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the one that we are looking for. Now, it's at that point that Jesus suddenly reveals to the disciples what it's going to be like to be a follower of him. 
It's not one of grandness where you get to rule and reign and lord over other people. No, it's going to be difficult because right after this, verse 31, he says this, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must, it's necessary, it's got to happen. It is necessary for him to suffer many things, be rejected of the elders, of the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed, and after three days, rise again. And he teaches his disciples this, and it's one of these occasions where it's just a short verse, but it's probably a day's worth of material that the Lord gives, explains certain things that are going to go on. You know, this would have been the activity of the day for them. And he gets done with this, and this is the first time he does this, but one of his disciples pulls him aside. Uh, It's Peter, and Peter says unto him, Uh, this, he began to rebuke him, verse number 32. You read other gospel accounts, he tells him, not so, Lord. He turned about and looked on his disciples, and he rebuked Peter, saying, get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. And then he makes the statement, uh, he gathers individuals unto him and is with his disciples, and he said unto them, whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And he has his lengthy teaching there of what it is to be a disciple. See, he explains, okay, it is not that you get to Lord when you follow me, you're going to, well, follow and serve. And with the serving, you're going to suffer. Uh, the second time that this happens, uh, you have uh, there in Mark chapter 9 and verse 31, the Lord goes through and explains uh, what's going to happen, that he's going to be delivered into the hands of men and they're going to kill him. He's going to be killed and rise again the third day. But right after this, what happens is this, is that you have this discussion of the disciples that they're arguing uh, in verse 33 The Lord says, what was it you disputed among yourselves by the way? And they held their peace. But they had been disputing amongst themselves who would be the greatest. Hey, who's going to be the leader? And the Lord has to take them aside, calls together the twelve, and he says this, if any man desire to be first, the same shall be last and servant of all. And he takes a child and set him in the midst of them, and when he had taken him in his arms, he said unto them, whosoever shall receive one of the children in my name receiveth me. Whosoever shall receive me receiveth me not, but him that sent me. He basically goes, you need to be like a child. But all of you have an ego not willing to suffer. And then you get to to Mark chapter 10. And the Lord once again takes this lengthy discussion, verse number 33, he says, behold, we go up to Jerusalem. The son of man shall be delivered unto the chief priests and the scribes. They shall condemn him to death and shall deliver him to the Gentiles. And they shall mock him and shall scourge him and spit upon him and kill him. And the third day he shall rise again. And immediately, I mean, this is, you know, the action's not stop here. But right after he says this, immediately, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come unto him saying, Master, we would that thou shouldest do for us whatsoever we shall desire. And he said unto them, what would you that I should do for you? And they said unto him, grant unto us that we may sit one on the right hand and the other on thy left hand in thy glory. Hey, we want to rule. Now, in the other accounts, uh, they actually bring in the heavy artillery. You go, what's that? Uh, They bring in mom. 
who may have been a relative of Jesus, if we understand correctly. It may have been his aunt. And she's the one who kind of brings this request. Could my sons have this when you set up your kingdom? That they sit on your right and left hand. And the other disciples, as you read the account, are very angry with them because they hadn't thought of it. And so what does the Lord have to do? Well, uh, he begins in verse number 42. Jesus called them to him and saith unto them, ye know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And their great ones exercise authority upon them. But so shall it not be among you. But whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister. Other places that's translated your servant. Or it's the word that translates diakonos, deacon. But, verse 44, whosoever you will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. It's not just a mere word for servant. It's the word slave. You're going to be a slave of everyone. And then this verse, which is the key verse in the whole book. This is the point that Mark works to, to get you to, to see. And this is the point that he's going to uh, emphasize. And it's this. For even, verse 45, the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. You notice right after this, they come to Jericho, and you go, what does that mean? They're about to head up to Jerusalem for him to be crucified. The greatest act of service. Even though there's crowds coming and adoring him, and he's eventually going to have a triumphant entry, he's not coming there to be Lord. He's coming there to be a servant of all a slave of all. Um, This is really the the whole theme here is that Jesus is a servant and if you're going to be a disciple, one who follows, uh, a disciple is one who follows for the purpose of learning to be like that person, then guess what? That kind of discipleship is going to be one of suffering and service. Does the glory come after? Yes, the glory comes after, but there has to be a time of service and suffering to be a reflection of what Jesus Christ is like if you're truly going to be like him. And so he kind of works the whole theme together of Jesus being the servant and then reflecting upon these disciples who are supposed to be followers of him. Problem is, is that they get it wrong every time. Jesus says, this is what it's supposed to be like. And they're thinking, okay, let's set up a kingdom. Let's be like this. Let's argue with our, uh, our friends who's the best And the Lord's just kind of saying, if you're going to reflect me, understand I came not to be served, but to serve everyone. And even to the point of losing everything, I lose my life serving others. And so he works the theme together, reflecting that Jesus is a servant, but what's it going to mean for us as disciples? We're going to reflect Christ in our life of service and sacrifice for others. Now one other theme that uh, you want to understand that Mark is trying to get across and it's very subtle because it's going to be one that the book of John is going to magnify that Jesus is God. But you may have noticed this in Mark chapter 1 it says this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, what? Okay, what, what would you have put there had it been talking about servant? Yeah, you'd probably put son of man. 
But Mark doesn't put that. He puts the Son of God. Now, for us, we, we, you know, being back in that culture, to be the son of something was to be them. Okay, it was to be that thing. Uh, It's not saying that God had a son. No, this is one who's a perfect reflection of it. When that statement is made, it's to show that Jesus is the son of God. He is God. But understand this, this is a God who's not lazy like the Romans have. You got all sorts of lazy gods. Because, well, those gods are a reflection of people. No, this means he is God. And the way that Mark does this is to show this is a God who works. Think about the first individual in all of our Bible that works, God You know, on the seventh day, he rests from his work. Um, Mark is, by this, showing that Jesus is God, a God who is still involved and still working uh, and has not given up working in his universe that he's a part of, and he's willing to work amongst the lowest of his universe. He's a God who works. And so uh, that uh, is one of the other themes that Mark has. It's a, a subtle theme that you see going throughout because it's so magnified in the book of John that Jesus is God. No questions uh, asked there because that's what he says uh, is his theme and purpose uh, in the book of John. Uh, but Mark's a little bit more subtle about it. And uh, it kind of shows this as the God who works. So Hopefully this gives you something as you read through the book of Mark. You, you can kind of look for some of these signs and other things as you read through it and uh, hopefully gain a greater appreciation of what Mark is. And every time I go through it, there's something else I catch from the book of Mark um, as far as some of the details you have. Even though it's a simple book, um, it is a good book to encourage us, one to reflect upon in the sense of our own hearts to say, am I a servant? Because that's what I've been called to not to be a leader, but to be a servant. Uh, And hopefully that's reflected in our life. Well, let's pray. Lord, we thank you. May we reflect Christ in our life. We are disciples of Christ if we put faith in Jesus Christ, but that means we've been called to serve. And at times our pride, which is so easily uh, nurtured in our own uh, flesh, Uh, can get us to think that we uh, must be lords and leaders. And the truth being is that the Lord wants us to reflect the fact that he was a servant. And so may we uh, get the mind of Christ. Philippians 2 tells us that he uh, humbled himself so he might serve. May we have that kind of attitude also. And this we pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.